Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. A lot of serious developments to get to, Rick. Obviously, uh, we, we crossed a very grim milestone in terms of the pandemic, 200,000 dead. Uh, we have the, um, the, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the battle uh, to replace her. Uh, we have uh, a campaign that is shaping up to be even perhaps stranger than we thought it would be. Uh, before we get to any of that, though, I, I, am I correct in, in understanding that you are um, you're coming to us slightly injured uh, today? I don't, I don't have any comment on this. Because here, here's, here's the reports that I've heard just, just, to, uh, just, just to get to – just to clear this up. I, I heard that you broke your collarbone, your clavicle, which is a, a, a you know, very painful injury, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, and I certainly hope that you recover uh, quickly. Thank you. It's um, very nice of you. Yes, nice. yes. Uh, I am a little concerned, though. Um, the reports that I have heard is that you broke your collarbone walking your dog. Um, I don't know that that's technically true. I mean, it, it may have been a football injury. It may have been a rugby or a basketball injury. But even the walking your dog thing, I mean, it, it, technically speaking, you know, she was she was really walking me at that point. And uh, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah. But I just technically say, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a first time. You know, I want to dwell anyway. I hope you recover quickly. But uh, thank you. Yes. You know, breaking any bone, let alone a collarbone, uh, walking your dog, that's that's an interesting one. So uh, it's, it's serious. Yeah. It's really, yeah. really something else. Um, yeah. So uh, for, I don't want to um, dwell much on the Supreme Court battle. Actually, I, um, as you know, I've been kind of. Uh, uh, preaching a message uh, a bit to our colleagues that uh, obviously a Supreme Court confirmation uh, fight is important. It's a big story. It's an important story. Um, I also think that in this case, uh, the battle over replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the battle lines have been drawn. Uh, we know how virtually every Republican is going to vote. We know how every uh, Democrat is going to vote. Um, there, there isn't a lot of drama. We don't usually spend a lot of time you know, uh, going play by play in a game where the final score is already known. Uh, we also know that, um, you know, the, the, the White House would love nothing more than to have uh, the next uh, 41 days or so be all about, uh, you know, the battles over his pick to replace uh, the president's pick to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I, I don't want to dwell on it, but but I do. I am starting with it because Lindsey Graham was somebody you and I have known for a long time. I, you know, friend of the podcast, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, and he he asked us to do something. Asked all of us. I don't mean us specifically, but asked you know really the world to do something um, uh, not that long ago. And uh, well, I, I, can you play the tape, Trevor? I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. Okay, Trevor, can you play that first sentence again? I want you to use my words against me. Uh, one, one more time, just because, you know, like I said, Lindsey Graham, we, 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 he asked us to do something. So go ahead, Trevor. I want you to use my words against me. Okay. So anyway, uh, Lindsey Graham was crystal clear and he went on to talk about uh, this being a new rule. There were no caveats. There was nothing about if, you know, I mean, in fact, explicitly wasn't if our guy's in power. It was, it was anyway. So we're going forward. 
He also, he also, John, to, to, to be fair, he reiterated that in, in not just in 2016, he said it again in 2018 after the Kavanaugh hearings. And he, he is, though, not so much a fan of those words any longer. And, and in part, he is saying it's because of Kavanaugh, even though he reiterated it post-Kavanaugh, and because of what Harry Reid did to, 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 to eliminate the 60-vote uh, the threshold for most judicial appointments. Both of those things, of course, have happened before the pledge that he's making. Lindsay, we should note, we, we had Lindsay's opponent, his Democratic opponent, on the podcast last week before the death of Justice Ginsburg, uh, Jamie Harrison. Uh, he had a big fundraising day uh, that day, maybe because of the podcast, or you know, maybe it was a poll or something that was out there as well. Well, who knows? Yeah. We've invited Senator Graham to, to join us in the podcast, but we are, for now, at least honoring his request that we use those words. Yeah, please, pl- Trevor, one more time, that first sentence. I want you to use my words against me. Yes. Uh, so, so again, he, he used those words, used those words again uh, in an interview actually with Jeffrey Goldberg uh, of The Atlantic uh, after the Kavanaugh uh, hearings. Subsequently, in explaining his complete and total reversal, he has said that there were two factors. One, as you mentioned, Harry Reid invoking the nuclear option on lower court judges, which was something that happened years before either of those statements. And the treatment of Kavanaugh, which is something that happened after uh, the uh, the second statement. So I don't really buy any of it. And we will fully and totally and completely honor uh, Lindsey Graham's request to use his words against him. Meanwhile, on to other issues, uh, Rick. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, we passed this rather uh, horrific milestone, 200,000 Americans who have died of, uh, of COVID-19, uh, 200,000 Americans, a, uh, a, a fatality rate that is actually uh, higher than, uh, dramatically higher than the rest of the world, looks more like the third world than, uh, than, than, than the advanced industrialized countries. Um, certainly um, something that, uh, it will be talked about and studied and analyzed in years to come, even after this virus is behind us, after there is a uh, you know, fully functional vaccine. We will wonder what happened. Uh, but the president has had some interesting uh, statements to make um, uh, at, uh, about the virus. You know, we heard we went round and around with what he had told uh, Lindsey Graham about how he likes to downplay the virus. Um, and then he you know, we had the press secretary say he never downplays it. So we had him say he didn't lie. I mean, all of that. But now the president is doing rallies on an almost daily basis. I just want to play a clip uh, from a rally that he held in Ohio on Monday where he offered a, well, a, a, an interesting an interesting bit of analysis uh, as to who COVID-19 affects. It affects elderly people, elderly people with heart problems and other problems. If they have other problems, that's what it really affects. That's it. But it affects virtually nobody. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Now, the second thing where he says it affects virtually nobody, he was specifically talking about younger people, saying essentially offering a new theory uh, that young people are uh, essentially immune uh, from COVID-19, which I'm sure is the message uh, greatly appreciated on colleges and universities around the country that are trying to keep a, 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 a lid on all of this. Uh, my, uh, my daughter goes to UVA. Uh, the president of uh, the University of Virginia has just Im- imposed some new restrictions uh, on any gatherings of more than five people uh, not allowed currently. 
not allowed for the next couple of weeks to have visitors uh, in Charlottesville or to leave Charlottesville to visit somebody. So, you know, you have colleges and universities around the country trying to uh, get the best, you know, behavior out of out of young people. And you have the president of the United States saying, ah, it affects nobody. It affects nobody. So I thought, Rick, I would play just a little clip that uh, uh, was uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, yesterday uh, speaking to uh, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Take a listen to what Fauci said about this notion uh, that it only affects, that this virus only affects, as the president was saying, uh, elderly people who already have other problems. Take a listen. Is the elderly and people at any age with underlying conditions, right. underlining any age. So don't just think the elderly are the problem. There are plenty of younger people who have underlying conditions that put them at risk. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't I don't really know what more there is to say uh, about this, uh, Rick. The, if, if you listen to the uh, to, to the public health professionals, Dr. Fauci and others, um, there is a lot of concern about what we are going to in in the fall. Uh, as we uh, clash with a potentially, you know, problematic uh, flu season happening at the same time as as we're dealing with COVID nineteen, there are a number of states, particularly in the Midwest, uh, even uh, you know my um, my former home state of, of South Dakota, uh, where you see alarmingly high infection rates, and uh, you know the president is holding his rallies. Uh, I do note that they're putting people with having people behind him in camera shot wearing masks. I guess that's a good thing for the optics and a good message to send, but, 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 but virtually nobody else in these rallies is wearing masks. And the president is, is not just downplaying uh, the, the virus, but he is, uh, and the, the, the threat of the virus, he is saying things uh, that are, are, you know, according to the, health, the public health experts, as you just heard, entirely untrue and, and perhaps even dangerous uh, untruths uh, to be talking about. And, and John, I, I, I think it comes down to this. I mean, we don't know what the next 40 days are going are gonna to look like. We don't know uh, what, what kind of campaign we're going to have. But there's a couple of different possibilities. One is if we, have, we could have a campaign about the president's leadership, uh, including his leadership on COVID-19 and race relations, looking back at uh, the, uh, the, the perceptions of how he's handled these things. President Trump loses that race, uh, according to all the polling that we've done, public and private polling. It's all, it's all out there. If, though, it's a campaign about what happens next, about an economic recovery, about turning the corner, that's a much different race. You know, John, um, we, we had some polling out this morning, uh, battleground state polling that we do with, along with the Washington Post this cycle, uh, in Florida and Arizona, Sunbelt states that were never really supposed to be on the map. But um, you know, if you looked at Arizona in particular, it looked like it might be fading from President Trump. We had a different portrait of it. We had a, a basically a tied race, a point or two in either direction. Uh, when you look at it from likely or registered voters, it's, it's basically a jump wall in both Florida and, and Arizona. And uh, you know, I think a relevant point is that Florida and Arizona right now, COVID is not front page news. COVID, there isn't a spike, fortunately, in either of those states right now, like some of the upper Midwest states are experiencing. And the advantage that President Trump has on the economy and on, on looking past the crisis starts to, to become evident. And that's why you see a president flatly misleading people about his record on COVID, uh, as well as the reality of COVID right now. He is trying to construct an entirely different reality. And I would say that if, if he's able to do that, if he's able to convince voters of that in enough key places, 
That's what keeps him in this race. You know, the, the Florida numbers were are, are fascinating in, in our polls, showing uh, Biden with a very slight lead uh, within the margin of error among registered voters, among likely voters, the president with a very slight lead uh, also within the margin of error. Uh, so much, uh, so much depends on, on, on the state of Florida. Uh, I mean, as, as you and I have discussed, not just uh, obviously critical to the math. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's pretty much impossible to envision uh, a plausible scenario where Donald Trump wins re-election without winning Florida. Um, I mean, he could have done it last time. Um, and he could do it again if he wins That's right. all of those uh, Midwest battleground states again. But I don't hear anybody, not even his most, you know, diehard, uh, you know, uh, loyalists suggesting that he will, you know, pull that. Uh, it's not a trifecta. It's a what, what do you call four in a row, Rick? Uh, a quadfecta? How do we can you help me out? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a horse racing term. Yes, yeah, the, the perfecta. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But no, but the difference between the difference between you know an election night and an election week or more could easily be Florida and uh, toss in North Carolina as another early state that will tell us a heck of a lot about where where the country is. Michael Bloomberg pumping a hundred million dollars, of course, of his own money into just that one state. I think he's thinking about that and the possibility of a of a cleaner election results with the president suggesting he may not accept the election results. Uh, and, and Florida looms you know enormously large as the, as does COVID. I mean, they, look, this country passes this mile. Zone at this moment, it is still disrupting people's lives. The economy is still not where it is, and I think it's very telling, John, that um, in this week where uh, liberals lost an absolute icon, a cultural icon as well as a, a legal icon, in Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and we're now gearing up for this Supreme Court fight uh, and all the you know, all the talk about a lifetime appointment could be a, a woman in her forties on the conservative side replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Amid all of that. Joe Biden wants to talk about COVID. Joe Biden wants to talk about the economy. Uh, take a little listen to, to how he marked this, uh, this, again, this grim occasion of 200,000 dead. Today, unfortunately, uh, America is going to have to speak to this quickly, going to reach a tragic milestone. 200,000 deaths recorded as of today because of the coronavirus. 200,000 deaths all across this nation. And it means, it means there are empty chairs and dining room tables and kitchen tables that weeks and months ago were filled with a loved one, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister. And all the president does is deliberately change the subject. We've covered this president changing the subject a lot, haven't we, John? It's something he does. <laughs> and, and by the way, we were waiting all day long to see what President Trump would say about the 200,000 milestone uh, all day long uh, on Tuesday. It did not come. He did not. Uh, he did not comment on it. But uh, as he was uh, preparing to leave yesterday evening from the South Lawn aboard uh, Marine One, he was asked uh, about uh, you know the the, the 200,000 milestone. Uh, he looked at the reporter who asked the question and he said, "Anybody else?" And he did not answer. Uh, the, the next reporter asked the same question. At that point, the president did answer, and he said, uh, he, he said that if, if it weren't for all that they had done, it would have been two and a half million, maybe three million who have died, and it's also unfortunate, um, and then proceeded to blame China. He gave himself an A-plus this week. 
Yeah. They, they, earlier, earlier he did uh, give himself an A plus in terms of his handling uh, of the pandemic. During he's given himself an A plus a couple of times. Uh, at one point, he did uh, uh, suggest a, a much lower grade in terms of public relations. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, who knows? But um, but I don't know, Rick. I mean, look, an election about COVID uh, is not one that Trump wins. An election about what comes next in the economy on the other side of COVID. That's why he's pushing for a vaccine. Uh, that's why the the A plus grade and the perception that he's trying to put out there. And and it is a big gamble. Um, we've talked about this a lot over the last year. Another big gamble by Joe Biden and the Biden campaign to try to brush aside some of the liberal, uh, the, the loudest voices on the left, the people that are now calling for court packing or adding states or eliminating filibusters. Biden doesn't want to engage in any of that. What he wants to talk about is how people are living their lives right now on COVID, on the economy. He'd like to talk about the Supreme Court in the context of health care much more than in the context of Senate procedures. Uh, and that's that's not where a lot of voices in his party want him to be right now. There's a generational divide. There's an ideological divide uh, and, and a test for Biden to try to stay on that message as that first debate approaches next week. Also, Rick, you know, um, he does have an ability. I don't know if you if you've noticed this uh, to go off into an entirely different direction, uh, different from, from all of those. Uh, I, I thought it was notable Once in a while. At, 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 at at his rally uh, in Minnesota. Um, he had this very um, <laughs> unusual little uh, diversion talking about uh, MSNBC anchor Ali Velshi, who, uh, while covering a, a protest, was uh, was hit by a uh, rubber a rubber bullet, um, and apparently the president rather in, I guess enjoyed seeing that. Take a listen to what he said. I remember this guy Welchy. He got hit on the knee with a canister of tear gas, and he went down. He didn't. He was down. My knee. My knee. Nobody cared. These guys didn't care. They moved him aside. And they just walked right through. It was like, it was the most beautiful thing. No, because after we take all that crap, for weeks and weeks, they would take this crap, and then you finally see men get up there and go right through. Did, wasn't it really a beautiful sight? It's called Law and Order, Law and Order. I mean, Rick, I, I, I just play it because if I had described it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't I think, believe me. But here you have a, a journalist who is covering a protest and by the way, this was a peaceful protest that he was covering. Uh, this was not a riot he was covering. And uh, and regardless, he was reporting. Uh, and he was hit not by a tear gas canister, but by a rubber bullet. Um, it hurts. Uh, and and the president is, and you can hear the crowd's a little bit uneasy with it, I think. I mean, there's there's not a lot of reaction as he as he gleefully recounts uh, you know, a human being uh, going down in pain. Um you know, so like I said, I, I I think the president has an ability to, uh, to to go in 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 many different directions over the next forty one days. Yeah, and the crowd, you know, d- d- don't underestimate this. I mean, there was there was some reporting out uh, in the last couple of days, John, as I'm sure you saw. The president happened to have a rally on Friday night that happened as news of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death broke. And uh, according to the reports, he was not told of this during the rally. Uh, we know that the White House chief of staff did, didn't, was there on the on the ground with him, did try to not to interrupt him. And one of the concerns, and I think it probably was a valid one, was that 
you'd have people cheer the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg if the president broke that news to the crowd at that moment. The crowds are wild, and they believe and eat up everything the president says. Um, our reporter, Will Steakin, who's been out of a couple of these, you know, talking to people how quickly a presidential tweet or a talking point becomes a, a rallying cry, a literal, literal rallying cry, fill the seat now, echoing in the, in the audience, all of the anti-Hillary stuff that's still for sale outside. They are still wild events. And of course, they do not uh, have any social distancing. The mask wearing is mostly limited, as you pointed out, to the people that are directly in camera shot. They're happening in a different reality, Trump's reality. All right, Rick, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk with Senator Dick Durbin, a uh, member of the Democratic leadership in the Senate. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, a member of the Democratic leadership in the Senate. Thank you for joining us, sir. You bet. I, I want to skip ahead. Uh, we'll get uh, get back to the to the current battle over the uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg vacancy, but let's skip ahead uh, to um, the next time Democrats are in charge or in control in the Senate, which you know could could be in January, uh, 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 may not be, but it, but if Democrats take over. Uh, there's there's a lot of talk about um, trying to undo what was done uh, to to Merrick Garland and now with the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat uh, by packing the court by expanding the uh, the Supreme Court from nine to eleven seats or thirteen. Uh, I, I I know uh, Senator um, that uh, Justice Ginsburg had been asked about this when she was alive, and her uh, rather pithy response was nine is quite enough. <laughs> uh, making it clear she didn't like the idea of expanding the court. What, what is your position on this? Do you do you think do you think Democrats will go forward with this? Is it a move you will support? No, I can tell you that there's no serious conversation among my colleagues uh, about this prospect. Uh, it is speculative. Uh, it is in the future, if at all. Uh, and we are focused on the job at hand, uh, which is to try to make certain that whoever fills this Supreme Court vacancy is someone who will respect the power of that court when it comes to things as basic as the health care of Americans. So this notion of uh, looking at some structural change in the court, uh, I can just say is, is not a serious topic on Capitol Hill at this moment. And, and on the current battle, uh, the Republicans have made it abundantly clear, uh, all except two, uh, that they are ready to go ahead uh, with hearings and a vote. Uh, is there anything you, you've been you've been you've been part of many many epic uh, battles on Capitol Hill? Uh, nobody, I don't think, uh, knows Senate procedure better than you do. Is there anything that Democrats can do to delay or prevent a vote before November third on this uh, on this vacancy on this nomination? We can certainly delay things, but only for limited periods of time. When it comes to the outcome, uh, it depends on four Republican senators stepping up and saying this is wrong. Two have done so, Senators Murkowski and Collins. Uh, others uh, we were waiting on have all reported that they're going to go along with Senator McConnell and his approach. Uh, it is possible, I put that in quotes and underline it, possible that some other Republican senators will have second thoughts as this progresses. But at this point, it is not very promising. 
Senator, the spirit of, 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 of behind the suggestion that some have made about expanding the size of the court or um, uh, doing things like eliminating the filibuster or even adding states, it, it, the spirit of it is and it's driven by a lot by younger progressives who say, look, the, the, the rules aren't fair anymore. You've had two presidents in the last 20 years who won despite losing uh, the popular vote. And now twice in four years, you're going to have uh, – procedural maneuverings uh, and precedents changed to allow Republicans to put a conservative justice uh, on the court. Are you are you sympathetic to that argument? Do you see an answer for it? And is there a way to, that, that you think the Democratic Party needs to signal that, yeah, falling back on the, set, the Senate and the old school traditions, the cooling saucer traditions, just doesn't cut it anymore if you've got uh, rules of the game that just are anti-democratic? I think that's a very fair observation. In just a few years in the United States Senate, 15 states, 30 senators, will represent 70% of America's population. And of course, the converse is true as well. Uh, 30% uh, of the population will be represented by 70 senators. And you think to yourself, well, that isn't fair. It doesn't reflect reality. But the Senate from the from the outset was designed to give minority states, small population states, uh, a significant voice in our government. The Senate rules were written the same way, filibuster and the like. The problem we have is it's more extreme now than it ever has been, not just in the number of senators representing a certain percent of the population, but in the rules of the Senate themselves. Yes, there's been a filibuster for a long, long time in the Senate, but it was rare. Uh, just by mutual respect, the senator said, we're only going to use this uh, sparingly. It was used in some of the most historic battles. We remember civil rights in the 1960s. But by and large, there were just very few instances where the filibuster was used. And then came the arrival of Senator McConnell and a new approach. Uh, we saw in just a few years uh, his use of the filibuster in numbers and at levels we had never seen before. Uh, and it has really transformed the Senate. Uh, I, I jokingly say when we allow visitors back in the building, they can take them to the gallery of the Senate, point down to the floor and say, this is the museum of the United States Senate. Those desks there used to be occupied by people we called legislators. They actually legislated things. We haven't done that very much in recent years. So the question, that the, the obvious one to, to my mind is is what senators might do about that. I mean, the, the, the rules are are set by the Senate itself. If you're in the majority, you, you, you say there's no conversation about expanding the, the size of the court, but what about the filibuster? What about adding to the number of states, um, and giving D.C. And, and Puerto Rico statehood, which would you know presumably add Democratic senators in the short term? Are those things that need to be on the table? I, I of course, support statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico. Uh, and I think it should be done sooner rather than later. When it comes to the rules debate, uh, unlike the expansion of the membership on the Supreme Court, there's been an active conversation, and it reflects the fact that many senators, in fact, some senators on the other side of the aisle, are sick and tired of what they've seen in the United States Senate, what it's become under Senator McConnell. Uh, let's cite some numbers to give you some context. Last year in the United States Senate, in the year 2019, we entertained and voted on 22 amendments in the entire year, 22. And six of them were worthless amendments uh, by Senator Rand Paul, who said, if you don't give me a vote, I won't let you go home. He lost all the amendments. Six of the 22 were that, were that style of amendment. 
people are sick of it. They're wondering why they work so hard to come to a body that does so little. We have one bill each year, the defense authorization bill. Now we've reached the point we don't have a budget resolution. We don't have any of the 12 appropriation bills. We have one CR each year that keeps us limping along until the next CR. It is a pretty grim situation. And so, yes, there's a conversation underway by members, at least on the Democratic side, and I think a few who've come up to me on the Republican side, that they want to see the Senate get back in the business of legislating. I agree. But but what about the the argument that uh, the Senate is different than the House? And because of the way the rules have been uh, established, and obviously the rules have changed over the years, but you need 60 votes effectively uh, to, 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 to get anything done aside from now that we've had the changes on judicial and, and, and nominations. Uh, but, but to do legislation, you need, you, need a, you need 60 votes. And that means that you know, a, a, a slim majority cannot ram something through uh, on, on party lines. And in, in the Senate, it needs to be bipartisan. Uh, you know, in, in, unless, unless you've got a party that's just, you know, you know, done as, as, as Democrats did after 2008 and 160 seats, but you, you, you require bipartisanship. And now is that, is that all going to go away? And, and, and it's going to be just like the house where, where the, where the majority rules and the minority effectively has no power at all. Well, it can change in a variety of ways, but the bloom is off the roads. The filibuster as onerous as it is requiring 60 votes to overcome it. And I've been the victim of that filibuster when it comes to the dream act for 19 years. I get regular majorities on the floor of the Senate, but I never have come up with 60 votes. And so the fate of hundreds of thousands of young people has been hanging in the balance and the fact that uh, uh, the filibuster has stopped them. But having said that, I, I think that the reality is this. Uh, we understand that there are ways to change the rules. One of those is to eliminate the filibuster and make the Senate look just like the House. But there are lots of gradations and lots of possibilities out there short of what I just described. Uh, I think there's going to be a serious, some serious thought about how effective the Senate is and can be uh, under the current rules. As the filibuster is being misused by hundreds of occasions each year, uh, I think it has really changed the Senate for the worse. Senator Durbin, as you know, we're, we're now less than a week away from the, the first presidential debate. Um, we know that... Um, that uh, Vice President Biden's getting advice from a lot of people. Nancy Pelosi said uh, you shouldn't even show up for a debate. But what, you know Biden very well. You've been observing the president uh, quite a bit. What, what are your thoughts on how one can most, most effectively debate President Trump? I know a lot of people think you got to fact check along the way. You know you have to stick to, to your messaging. But what, what, are you, what are you looking for out of this first debate between Biden and Trump next week? Here's what we know about Donald Trump in debate. The truth is no obstacle when it comes to assertions that he will make. Uh, he has, as president, uh, brought us to a point where uh, presidential statements are now automatically suspect and usually wrong or falsehoods. Expect the same in the debate. He will say anything that comes to his mind that is self-serving. Uh, and that is a reality. Joe Biden is a different person, I'm glad to say. That's why I'm supporting him for president. I hope he just sticks to his message and shows the kind of temperament which America longs for in the president. Uh, we have gone through a miserable experience with this president, current president's personality. I think Joe Biden is such a contrast and offers the hope that we can start to bring this country back together again. I hope that's the image that comes through in the debate. 
Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, member of uh, Democratic leadership and also the Judiciary Committee. Thank you, Senator. Really appreciate your time. Good to be with you. Thanks. And that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, thanks to the entire team, John Carl, of course, Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller and the gang. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week after the first presidential debate.